The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. When you are. Welcome to Shaking and Stirred. That is my co-host Tom Astor from England, who is always ready, ever ready. Is in fact his name. And that's partly because he's red on the top and um, a different colour on the bottom. It's just like a red, ever ready battery, really. I'm more like a Duracell. Yeah, gold on the top. And, uh, you know, lasts longer than an ever ready. But anyway, what am I talking about? <laughs> Great to see you. It's wonderful to have another episode of Shaken and Stirred. Clearly more slurred today than stirred. I wish I could say the same thing about you. Go straight in with the insults. But, you know, why, 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 you know, pussyfoot around when I can just go straight for the jug, you know, my friend? Doesn't hurt me. I'm impenetrable. You're also about 3,000 miles away, so that helps as well. Yeah, that can't get you. So tell me, what are you drinking? Given who our guest is today, this evening, I thought I thought um, I wouldn't go too complicated. I'll leave that to them. I am drinking a blueberry crush, which is basically what I can find in my kitchen. So it's a bunch of blueberries crushed up. This is actually a cocktail, by the way. Squeeze a lemon juice. I found an old lemon in the fruit bowl. Vodka is normally a bottle in the freezer. A little bit of sugar, plenty of that hanging around. And um, soda water, which is more difficult because not a lot of water is drunk in my house, but I found some. Garnished with a little bit of sliced lemon. Look at that. Oh, and, wow. then, and how what do you do? Shake it all up? Or did you blend it? What did you do? Stirred and, and like crushed and stirred. And you know, it's delicious, very, very refreshing and very healthy because it's got fruit and water in it. So I can't recommend it enough. And vodka, which isn't fattening. So yeah, what can I say? In fact, Tom, you look like you are losing weight in front of me. That's how yeah. dramatic it is. Everybody, this is the new blueberry vodka diet. Um, from the snapper, and it, it, it works. And, and I, by the way, the, the blue sweater, in fact, you're looking all round a bit like a blueberry. I do look like a blueberry, yeah. I was about to say I feel a bit like a blueberry, but anyway, I will off drinking that. You and I had the same thoughts because we have a rather special guest today. It's about high time, as I mentioned, we've had, we have an expert on this show um, who actually knows what they're talking about. But you know, I as well thought, why get too complicated when we have sort of an expert on the show? And I decided to go with tequila on the rocks with probably about a shot of lime juice and, and just the smallest tad of triple sec. So it's kind of like a margarita, but it's a very, very light, heavy on the tequila, light on everything else. Again, not trying to do anything too complicated because our man today, that's what it's all about. But before we get there, booze news. Booze news. And there's a few interesting things happening. It's obviously St. Patrick's Day coming up and Jameson's have decided to, to do something a little novel, a little different. They're actually going to pay people to take St. Patrick's Day off. That's right. You heard it here. In fact, if you go to the Jameson's website and you can fill in your name, what have you, they're going to give it, I think it's to a thousand people, $50 to take the day off. I'm not sure that 50 bucks is going to cover most people's day off, but it might cover a few Jameson's on St. Patrick's Day. And let's not forget, St. Patrick's Day was indeed cancelled last year during the pandemic for the first time in 250 years. So I think we all deserve a touch of the Blarney this St. Patrick's Day with a shot of Jameson, a pint of Guinness or whatever is your fancy. I prefer 50 quid, I think, and like not get coronavirus. <laughs> you know, and also England, in the UK now, you can't, nothing's open, you can't go out. So seriously, take the 50 quid and stay at home. Are they going to come and check that you're enjoying yourself? I, I don't know. I think, I think they're just 
they're just hoping you're going to go take a, go, go probably get out there and you know get on their on their guest list on their name list and send you sort of really annoying emails for the next 10 years I think St. Patrick's Day anyway I don't think they celebrate nearly as uh, ostentatiously in Ireland as they do in America it seems to me that it's like Halloween you know the Americans just take it to a new level I mean being in New York on St. Patrick's Day is you know it's nuts everything's green I mean you can't get a pint of beer without someone putting green stuff in it it is St. Patrick's Day, and by the looks of your face, you're not fond of green booze. Would you trust a green drink? I mean, well, she probably drink them all day, don't you? Probably those health things like kale and weird stuff that you put in them. Coming from a man who likes his drinks, the more urinal coloured, the better. Um, I, I'm shocked by you, but you're okay with yellow, but you're not fine with green. On that note, I feel that, you know, what else is there? But before we actually do move on, have you heard about this whiskey and them discovering that you can actually perhaps whiskey has terroir is that how you pronounce it terroir 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 yeah terroir, oh. yeah you have to have a hot potato in your mouth when you say it so they're talking about whiskey now having terroir which they always say you couldn't and that's normally described with wine right it's it's that that you can taste the region you can taste the earth where in the world that the wine came from because of the, the actual soil that it was grown on. So the actual hillside, the area of France or Spain or Portugal, wherever it was, that that very specific grape, even if it's the same grape grown in two places, you'd be able to tell by the flavor of the wine where it was grown. That's the terroir, correct, Tom? Terroir, that's correct, yeah. So what are they so Apparently doing? now they're saying you can do that with whiskey, but it's a new survey that's come out because for the longest time they said you couldn't do that. But, but now they're saying, no, in fact, it is there. It, the, the essence is there. Okay, I guess you've got to test the peat bogs or whatever it is where they where they where they um filled where the water comes from, right? Exactly I that. Mean, so apparently it's the peat that you can the very specific peat and the flavors of the uh, and the smells of the of the peat that are coming through and that you can actually I, I I guess isolate where in Scotland it came from or where in the world the whiskey came from um, from that very specific peat that you mentioned that well, I'm not, Yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean if you think about it, you know, if I drink a pint of Guinness in England that's been made in England. It tastes completely different from a pint of Guinness in Dublin. And, you know, the water quality of the water is completely different in England than it is in Ireland, and, and the drink does taste completely different. So it makes sense that the, the same is going to apply with whiskey. It makes a lot of sense. But instead of listening to the two of us gibbering away of what could be and should be, it's high time, as I said, that we actually have a cocktail expert on Shaken and Stirred. And today's guest cut his teeth in New York City at Gramercy Tavern and the Pegu Club before opening the James Beard Award-winning PDT in New York City in 2007. And PDT Hong Kong, a decade later, he's written two books and is working on a new restaurant project and a third book, all the while serving as the exclusive mixologist for American Express Centurion Airport Lounges and an ambassador for Banks Rum. Please welcome Jim Meehan. Jim, how are you, mate? I'm great. It's It's been a long time since we've seen each other, but I'm excited to be on the show. It has been a while since we've seen each other. In fact, I, I, have, I remember you actually, I think, did you actually make me a drink at the actual PDT? So the first meeting was, I, I tracked it down. I unfortunately can't find the photo. Todd Thrasher of Restaurant Eve and PX in DC invited me to uh, a Chefs for Seals event at a rooftop in New York City. I think it was in 2009. And you had gone and you were in the, in like the heart of your sort of fashion photography career. And you were shooting seals to raise awareness for, for the plight of seals in Canada, I think it was. So we did like a charity fundraiser event. And afterwards, 
you did a group shot of all the chefs with the bartenders, and then you did a group shot with the bartenders. And and Todd has his picture still framed, so he sent me a picture of of the four of us. It was cool. Very cool, very cool. I remember it well now that you mentioned it. But there were a lot of people at that time. I remember there. I don't know how many chefs and and bartenders and everyone else I photographed that evening. But I know that overall. Uh, just a, a seriously fun night and a good good evening of fundraising. You hear that, Tommy? I'm out there saving lives, man. I'm using my photography to, to save the world. Now what am I doing? I'm sort of drinking instead during a pandemic. But we have an expert. We have Jim. Jim, what are you drinking yourself? I've chosen the Five Island Flamingo, which is a, a super simple drink. It's just Banks Five Island white rum and grapefruit soda. It's a twist on the Paloma. It's just a highball, really simple drink. And I think one of the things that, you know, I have, I have no idea where our conversation will lead us today, but I, I think I've spent, you know, I've been in the bar business for 25 years and I've spent a lot of time making a lot of very, what many people would consider to be pretty complicated cocktails. And I think as I get old and think about what I want to drink now and why I want to drink it and, and what I'm doing with my career, I'm, I'm simplifying a lot. So just a simple five-hour flamingo for me over here. You obviously need an incredibly sharp brain to remember all the ingredients for all those thousands of cocktails that you have to make without looking at the recipes. And as we get older, I personally know that it's more difficult to remember stuff. Is that anything to do with it or is it just? I mean, I think it's part of it. I, I think that there's there are the drinks you want to have yourself. And then there are the drinks that as a restaurateur or bar operator, you sell for money. And if, if the only drinks you can make for money are really complicated, you're really never going to be a, you may not even keep the doors open. So I feel like it's a little bit of like wanting to simplify things so that I can spend more time talking to who comes through the door. Like I think as a young bartender, I wanted to make drinks and serve them to people. And I think as an old bartender, I want to serve people drinks. Like I actually want to talk to them. I, I started bartending in the nineties in Wisconsin before mixology and I used to talk about music or sports or culture or politics and when I got deep into the sort of cocktail hole I was so busy making the drinks that or, or and there were so many like interesting tools or ingredients around me that we never stopped talking about drinks and like I never really got I'm not getting to know people like I used to and I feel like I want to like I, I'm sort of I'm interested in drinks but I'm interested in a lot more than drinks. But I'm going to get down to the basis of this. He's using the excuse that he doesn't want to make an exciting cocktail or that he wants to do something very simple. The actual fact of the matter, everybody, is that he happens to be an ambassador for Banks Rum. So he's wow. actually doing a, a selfless promotion of using his own rum. And just to top it off, F FYI, everybody out there, he also sells East Imperial Grapefruit Soda. So it's all of it, the whole damn thing he sells. You go to his website and all of the yeah. things he just said, those are the two things he's got, okay? I'm not surprised if he's not actually served the drink in the bag that he produces. In I fact, find that it comes helpful. along with a spoon set that you can do all the rest I, of it. I mean, unbelievable, Jim, that you would be so shameless right at the top, but I love it. I love it. Everybody out there, remember, you have to sell yourself to get ahead. So let's get to the bottom of that drink because you've got a most gigantic ice cube in it. And one of the questions I had for you, because by the way, that was pretty much the, 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 when I looked at that drink, I'm like, okay, the ice cube. You're not without exhibition. How important uh, is the ice cube? I think the, to answer the first part of it, I think that the, in some ways, mixology, I don't know if the right term is jumping the shark, but I, but I think that 
the notion that all people who are bartenders are these artists who must suffer in order to get their art out there and that hopefully some great kind of gallerist will discover them and make their, their art viable. I think another thing that I've consciously tried to do throughout my career is to position what I do as a craft as opposed to an art, but that crafts people make things which they must sell and artists make things which a gallerist or a curator or someone else creates value out of. So I think that the connection between marketing, sales and creating things for me is a conflict-free zone. And, and I feel like that's something that I've tried to do. I think as far as this ice cube and the drink, if you're going to make something simple, like a highball with your grapefruit soda and your rum, and you're supposed to be a drink person, you should do something like not just use any straw, but like use a straw that's you know reusable. You should use an appropriate glass. And I just so happen to have a hand-carved piece of clear ice laying around the house to throw into my flamingo. So why not? There you go. Hand-carved ice cube. That is the first time I've ever heard of that. So a former colleague of mine at PDT, Don Lee, back in 2010 or nine, we were all using ice molds and, and chest freezers in New York. Milk and Honey was the first bar that I was aware of that was doing this. And Don had the idea of approaching an ice sculptor in Queens named Shintaro Okamoto and going to him and saying, hey, we make these ice cubes, but they would obviously be much cooler if they were clear. Would you be willing to cut these for us so that we didn't have to, so that you could basically have clear ice cut perfectly in the cubes. And he was able to get Shintaro to invest in the band saws and, and the equipment to do it. And so we started using this ice back in 2010. And now in most major cities of the United States, there's someone who has Kleinbell ice machines, which is what the sculptors use, and the proper equipment to sell prepared ice for cocktails. So this ice cube is from a local vendor here in Portland called PDX Ice. And you can just order it comes in a bag, they're like 50 cents a cube, and uh, they're pretty sweet. They're very, very cool indeed. You know, you, you talk about the, the whole bartender, and then you mentioned mixologist. We, I've come across, as I'm sure you have too, there are, there are a lot of people out there who don't like being called a bartender. And it's interesting, you yourself, first and foremost on your website say bartender, right? It's like, and you're proud of being a bartender, you've already announced it, but there are bartenders who don't like to be called a bartender who are like get upset and say, no, I'm not a bartender. I'm a mixologist. There's a difference. What tell us about that. Young bartenders hate being called mixologists now. Like they hate it. So it's all over the place. Where does that come from though? I mean, the, is it just the, that whole idea that you mentioned that perhaps a mixologist is some sort of artist? I mean, we've had Alex Ott on the show as well. And he's one of those who very much, doesn't like being called even a mixologist actually now he's he was a bartender was the mixologist and he's now a biochemist by all accounts and so or an alchemist or something i'm not quite sure but you know it, it, there are you know it sort of moves and moves and moves i guess what you can do with what you're doing but you know is that a culture that you see out there i think that the bartenders in 2005 six seven like when the sort of whatever this so-called craft cocktail movement really sort of started catching steam I think they were trying to distinguish themselves from bartenders who perhaps were less professional or less passionate or less invested in their career than these guys were. And then I think now we get to a point 
in 2020 where people are invested, but they think it's too precious to call themselves a mixologist. They just want to be called a bartender. So I feel like regardless of whether one term is too precious or the other isn't accurate enough, I think the bartending profession suffers from anxiety over whether this is a legitimate career. And I think that they, in the same way that, you know, people will give themselves titles that make maybe makes their, their job sound more, more prestigious or than it really is. I think it's related to professional anxiety. And I personally have am old enough and have been doing this long enough where I don't feel like a title I mean, it's important, and I think it's, it, 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 but it's less important to me now than it was, say, 20 years ago. And yeah. I don't attend bar regularly now, so I feel like it's an important distinction. For 15 years, I attended bar for 50 hours a week, and I, and now I show up at events or, you know, for fundraisers or charities, and, and we'll get behind the bar. But, you know, it's been 10 years since I was a full-time bartender, and it's painful. It's a little bit hard to watch me tend bar right now compared to someone who tends bar full-time. I'm a little slower. It, it, it's pretty painful when you watch us do it too, but we, we, we enjoy doing it regardless. And then we get behind a bar whenever we can. Now, Tom, you and I have actually both been to PDT. Please don't tell the speakeasy uh, that Jim uh, founded a long time ago. I'm not sure if you even remember, but it's if you remember, for those of you who have been, and if you've been to New York and you've, you've, you've gone on a bar hopping session, it's very likely you try to get in because it was the cool bar, the, one of the coolest bars for a very, very long time. And you used to have to get in there through, what was it, a hot dog shop? And you'd go through the back and, and there was like a phone go booth. The, into the hot dog stand and then take a left and you go through a vintage phone booth, which the back opens up and it lets you into the bar. It's super cool. I'm not sure if you remember, Tom, who knows? Because at that point, you probably just were following me along wherever I led you. But that's, I did take you there. And it, I remember going for the very first time and it was an incredibly cool idea. But And, and obviously... It speaks to the whole concept of a speakeasy, the sort of hidden bar behind something else, some other shop. What was it like? What, were you a part of the actual creation of that concept, that idea itself? So when I got involved, one of my regulars at Five Points Restaurant, which is now Vix, was partnering with, he helped open Crypt Dogs with his high school friend, Brian. And then he was helping to open PDT with Brian as well. And so they had already put the Get Smart entrance in and like a lot of the layout of the, the aesthetics of the bar were in. And it was my role to basically help concept it and create the create the drink program and design the bar and hire the staff and, and do the front facing work. But I, I I give Brian and Chris full credit for the Get Smart entrance. It was at, a t- at that time, Going to a cocktail bar, whether it be Angel Share or Milk and Honey or the Pavey Club, the, many of the cocktail bars in New York were, they, they had a bit of, there was something that for the guests, for the customers, it was a little intimidating. And I think that the sort of very camp entrance past the, the Double Dragon and Miss Pac-Man through the, the phone booth in the hot dog shop it really had a way of democratizing and sort of taking the preciousness, the, the affectation out of cocktails. And, and I think that was what our goal was, was from the beginning. It's like, yes, we take these drinks we make seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously. Here's a spicy redneck, some tater tots. We wanted to create a different vibe. I mean, cocktailing is, is in itself about the experience. I mean, there's a large part of what is the cocktail? What does it mean? Where does it take you? What's the provenance of the cocktail? The history of it? 
which particular liquor. I mean, there's a whole experience. And then, of course, there's the bar and everything else. And I remember, and I'm not sure if you've ever been yourself, but in, in the East Village as well, there is a Japanese sort of speakeasy uh, whiskey bar that is upstairs at the back of a supermarket that you have to walk through that, the whole. That is Angel Share, which is actually the that is the bar that inspired Sasha to open Milk and Honey. So when we talk about this sort of proto speakeasy movement in New York, Milk and Honey is the bar that usually gets all the credit for it, and it deserves a lot. Right. But Angel Share was Sasha's inspiration, and Angel Share is still open. Yeah, and that's the bar that I used to go to. So I've taken you there too as well, Tommy. You probably don't remember that. But so Angel Share, I would go to Hasaki, which is the a, a um, sushi place, which is downstairs in a basement, right? I think it's on 11th Street or whatever on 3rd Avenue. And then right up just around the corner upstairs, up in, the, in this Japanese supermarket, you'd wander through the supermarket all the way through, bright lights, overhead, neon. And then all of a sudden, there's like a back door in the supermarket with no name on it. You just open the door and all of a sudden, you're in a Japanese whiskey bar with gold lame everywhere and sort of velvet red seats and, you know, very beautiful hostess who would kind of greet you and seat you. And it was like you were in a Bond movie. I mean, it was sort of bonkers. So that was my first experience. And not to mention there's that other... Uh, Japanese sake bar down the road where you have to sort of knock on the door and they open the hatch and look at you and then kind of let you in and you kind of ha- can't help but think you're going to go in inside and be killed by the Akuda or something. You know, the, it's a sort of a whole experience in, in itself. But uh, that that whole culture, is that still something that's a big deal in the, and that's something that's happening or have bars changed a lot since then? The interesting thing that I'm glad that so many years have passed is that I think in, in New York, or in London or Tokyo or Paris or whatever, these things happen and then they cycle out to to either the rest of the world or the rest of the country. And I think as New Yorkers, which I used to be one, we sort of, we get through trend cycles at a breakneck speed where like, I mean, I remember three weeks after PDT opened, there was a Yelp or some other comment about how they're like, oh my gosh, someone brought their grandmother to the bar. Better get there fast before this place is already over. And so I feel like while New Yorkers who had been to PDT in the early days by now think that speakeasies are trash, there are many other people who have never even heard of a speakeasy who might go to PDT and just think it's the greatest thing on earth. So I think that these like cycle trends last you know, maybe more than 10 years. And I think that us, you know, for you, for instance, going to Angel Share and PDT in the early days, like you're just way ahead of the rest of the world. So I think that the answer, my my long answer to your question is that while I would love to think that my delicious drinks and the impeccable service at PDT were why PDT was successful, the reality is, is that that door and the silly taxidermy and the juxtaposition of tater tots and fancy cocktails, it's a recipe to create an experience that is memorable. And what people value and actually remember, I think, much more concretely is those memories. Like you may remember that time where the two of you went to PVT, but neither of you can probably remember what you drank because the space is what created that memory more than the drink. So I think that as much as I never really loved that door and was always really annoyed by the way the door took attention from what I did at PDT, that door was absolutely essential to the experience. And I think that if anything, PDT 
is a perfect example of why a camp speakeasy concept is just as valid a concept as a French bistro for other people to consider opening. I mean, I would never open another hidden bar speakeasy again, but this concept is, it works and people really like it. I think people, even if they want to go out and have serious snobby cocktails, like people love speakeasies. <laughs> I just think it's like, it's not, it's not me speaking. It's just like the, the data to me is there. Well, it's, it's clearly romantic. I mean, it's clearly a, a romance behind it. And, you know, it speaks of prohibition and there's a uh, incredible history around where they originally came from. And it's a bit Disney-fied. It's a bit like it's a small world of sort of cocktail bars. It's like, oh, and the speakeasy. Remember when we did this in history and everybody walked through and isn't this fun, you know, sort of. And it's, so it's a bit kitsch and you can, you are, clearly there's a reason why it seems weird. But of course, Angel Shares, you mentioned, it seems to be the sort of bar that, because when you go in, it's not like it's full of tourists. At least it wasn't when I went. No, so when not. I used to go in, you'd walk in and it was full of sort of Japanese businessmen, you know, talking and doing business, drinking their whiskey, and they would all look up at you, slightly irritated that somehow you'd found your way in. And, and, and you know, and you kind of slip in and be like, meanwhile, there were real deals being done. And so it, it felt like the real deal. And I was doing that was me in the in the 90s. Right. So it was totally different vibe probably to how it is now. It's probably the word is out on the street that Angel Show is, is, is a stop. And there's the tour bus that goes out and stops and goes, everyone go and experience a shot at Angel Share. And, you know, we have a, a, a whiskey flat, a tasting session. And, and, you know, so it's, it's probably a very different gig now. One of the things that I think you're pointing your finger to, which is funny about cocktail history because it's written by people who drink is that i think that when we in the in the immediate aftermath and even continued existence of these prohibitionary speakeasies i think we all got the brief wrong and that the reality is the original one that made everything famous was milk and honey and it wasn't designed after a prohibition speakeasy it was designed after angel share and i think angel share even though there are definite nods to new york prohibition speakeasies is a nod to the Ginza District Tokyo cocktail bars in Japan, which are all like up weird, unmarked elevators. I don't know if you've gone drinking cocktails in Japan, but there's like no storefronts. You kind of just go up to the like fourth floor of an office space and suddenly you're in this tiny little bar where everyone's yeah. smoking cigarettes and drinking serious cocktails. And there's some ancient bartender making impeccable drinks. And I think that the interesting thing is I think that maybe like 30 years from now, someone will look back and be like, they got it wrong. This, this whole thing was based on Ginza Tokyo cocktail bars, not based on retro New York speakeasies. Because I think that if you actually do a little digging into New York speakeasies, they were in places like Harlem and they were run by people who were, you know, hosting jazz musicians and they were houses that people partied in them. They were probably way more similar to employees only as far as the atmosphere and the energy. Like they were party bars, I think, more than they were like gustatory focus on my whiskey bars, which is what they, which is the way they are in Japan. Yeah, absolutely. And I've experienced just that. I mean, I was going to say, literally, they are up on the sort of 13th floor of some random hotel, you know, um, office building and you walk in and it's completely bonkers. And you're like, what's happening here? You get out the elevator and, and you open this random door and all of a sudden there's the bar and it's quite extraordinary. Yeah, I've, I've, and I've even been in bars that can only seat like four people. Right. I mean, it's sort of like they are really just completely random and, right. and 
and out there. But you mentioned so you you are also opening a bar, opening a restaurant, but you're also associated with a Japanese restaurant in in Portland, Oregon. Is that so? Yeah. Is this something that you're really into this Japanese culture? Because you've mentioned it several times. Talk to us about that. Well, yes, I think that I am certainly a closeted Japanophile in the sense that having traveled there, the thing that I found about Japanese culture that I'm really interested in is they, I'm obsessed with Japanese. There's a store called Self Edge. There's, well, there's a branch in, in New York, but there's one here in Portland as well. That was part of my, had to have a Self Edge to, to leave New York and move to another city. But they sell a lot of uh, American heritage workwear apparel, whether it be like jeans or shirts like this. And I just find a lot of the things I'm interested in, cocktails, jazz, well-made clothing, food, are all things that are highly revered and respected in Japan. And I and so I found in going to Japan, there was a reverence for the things that I really appreciate and value myself. And then in learning more about their culture, I just found that there are that we're interested in the same things and have a similar sort of value system in approaching the work. So about a, two years ago, a friend of mine approached me and said that he was asked by the owners of a, 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 a Japanese apparel company called Snow Peak, which has been in Portland for 20 years, who's, but has been in Japan for 70. They had one store in America in Portland. They have another store now in New York as well. And they were opening, they were going to basically create a whole headquarters for America that would have a restaurant in the base of it. And they and he asked me if I'd be interested in it. And for me, part of the reason I moved to Portland was because I wanted access to the mountain and the river, like basically to outside and easy access to it. And so for the last two years, I've been working on this project. So it's a, you know, a restaurant in this building that includes their retail space and their headquarters. And we have a chef who's worked in Japanese restaurants all over the world. And the cool thing for me is that you go to a Japanese cocktail bar, they're going to serve you mostly an American drink or, or, or a variation on a classic American cocktail. So I think that we are living, especially in the restaurant business right now, during a hyper-sensitive time to cultural appropriation. And so I would feel leery of trying to like open a, leg a legitimate Japanese cocktail program because I'm not Japanese, but I feel like I can adopt and, and, re and respect some of the aesthetics and sensibilities of, of Japan, but also create something that is authentic in the sense that the Japanese make American cocktails. No, absolutely. Just don't wear a kimono when doing it. I think a kimono might flatter my figure a little bit, but I but I, I will not be wearing a kimono. I do not know how to tie it. I can barely <laughs> put on a tie. There you go. Please, please, don't. please don't. So talk to us about your rum. So rum has one of those sort of histories of... I don't know. It's a storied history, but it's not always a good one. And uh, <laughs> not a good, it's not a performing story. It's not a good one. So you talked about cultural preparation just then. That's what led me to think about it. And uh, and you are uh, an ambassador to Banks Rum, and I, I don't know the story behind Banks Rum or where it came from, or how recently it existed. But you know, rum in general, it, it sort of gets a bit of a I don't know a cheap. Um, mixer that you know if you're going to get it you're going to get drunk you're going to get a hangover you're going to get a headache it's full of sugar it's not you know it's not necessarily the trendiest of drinks but I feel like rum is having a bit of a resurgence right now and I, tell me if new I'm wrong gin. but it's the new gin isn't it it's been trying to be the new gin for a long time <laughs> is it? I think that gin is a great example I'll get to rum when I opened the Pegu Club we were a gin bar and and I remember 
the we opened Pegu as a gin bar, and we had something like eleven gins. Like, and you could be a gin bar in two thousand five with eleven gins because there just weren't very many gins. Now there are hundreds of gins. With rum, starting at the Pegu Club, I had started working for different spirits companies and and being exposed to different types of spirits and different opportunities. And I think with rum, as I if we I got involved with the founders of banks in two thousand eight. And at that time, I'd been bartending since 1995, and I'd seen, I'd lived through the whole vodka period. Gin had finally kind of broken through, and it broke through not with the martini, but with the gin and tonic. Once people realized that, like, if the tonic was good, people would drink a whole lot of gin. And that was when Fever Tree launched, and the tonic, and Q-Tonic launched, and the, and the tonic sort of boom helped bring gin along. I found that tequila and mezcal were emergent, American whiskeys were emergent, and cognac and scotch were already at, on the top shelf. At that time, I was really interested in rum agricole, and, um, and I found that rum, it just was the only spirit in my bar that, had, that still had this really sort of cheap, commodified value in society. And, and I just found that there is the biggest room for growth in getting involved with a rum brand, especially a rum brand like Banks, where it was, they weren't making some, their first product was the five and it was, it's a white rum. So it's not an aged rum or, or, or a spiced rum or dark rum. And it, so it, it, their first offering was a dry rum and it's, and it's a really kind of rich, flavorful rum because the addition of Jamaican pot stilled and the addition of Javanese Batavia Iraq, which is this, Eastern style rum that never really ends up in Caribbean rum. So there is an innovative blend and the proposition created a, a product that worked great in a daiquiri, worked great in a rum and coke, but also worked well in tiki drinks or in punch, which was something that I could see coming along because David wondered to just put out a book called Punch in the year we launched. So to make a long story short, I, I found that instead of getting involved with other spirits that had already sort of either were having their moment or had their moment. I was interested in rum. I find that to this day, I think we've been able to shake the commodification of it. And like people know that like all rum shouldn't cost $12. I think that we still suffer from the fact that many rums are bottled with sugar added, some, some with significant amounts of sugar added. So there's a, people think that rum is all going to be sweet and that's not the case. Uh, because the United States has trade relationships with certain islands and not other islands, the pricing of rums in America and, and other countries for that matter has has a lot to do with trade relationships and, and subsidies. And so, for instance, in France, the rum agricoles that I really like are much cheaper than, say, a rum like this. Or here, rums from Puerto Rico or the American Virgin Islands would be much cheaper than banks. So I feel like there's still a long way to go, and there's certainly still a sordid history that, that you know began with the triangle trade that is is there to always talk about. But I think, frankly, that's a story that we need to be talking more about in America these days anyway. So while it's not uh, a story that any of us are cherished talking about, it's something that we need to talk about more. Talk to us about rum agricole. For those people listening, I mean, we've talked about this to some extent, you know, over the years on Shaken and Stirred as far as the difference, but we've only really breezed over it. But there, obviously, for those out there, I mean, rum spelt with an H, rum spelt R-U-M, rum agricole, 
for a lot of people, it's sort of gobbledygook. It's like, what is it? I mean, is it rum? Is it not rum? What's the difference? So it is. So this rum is made entirely from molasses, which is a byproduct of sugar production. So they make they make sugar, and then there's molasses left over, and that molasses gets sent to a distillery, and then the distillery uses that for rum production. Rum agricole um, is a an Appalachian origin controlled, like a Barolo or Champagne that is from the fret, sort of from islands like Martinique or Guadeloupe. And so it's a specific region of islands and they make rum not from molasses, the byproduct of sugar making, but they actually take the cane, cut it fresh, and they make rum from the juice. So that juice kind of gets, there's a catalyzation process where they're able to turn that into something that they can distill. So they make like a, essentially a wine with it and distill it. So the rum agricole style which is similar to cachaça from Brazil, for that matter. Both cachaça and rum agricole are made from fresh, fresh cane juice. And I find that rum agricole and cachaça have a grassy, vegetal, minerally quality versus, say, like a rum like Banks, where the combination of the molasses and the pot distillation gives it more baking spices or, or more like rich stewed fruits. So this sort of makes a more fruity, citrusy, spice style of rum, whereas rum agricole, we would have more grassy notes. And when you age rum agricole, the combination of that grassy rum going into a barrel and aging in the hot, humid Caribbean just creates like these, in my opinion, these very magical rums that are, would be great with a cigar or great with chocolate, really complex spirits. Absolutely delicious. And I, I've actually enjoyed a few sort of really old rums myself over the years and, and you know with friends who've had 50 60 80 100 year old rums you know which are you know, just sort of mind-boggling and really fun with really great bottles and all the rest of it now I, i'd love to get it sort of into the into the sort of weeds a little bit with cocktails with you because we've now we've got you it's like it's i'd love to find out some sort of very specific things for our listeners too but I'm one of those people that I, I, I do measure out my drinks. When I'm making a cocktail, I do measure out how much I'm putting in. But I do, like most people, kind of pour a little bit more in or just do a dash of this. And how important is the measurement? So if you notice, I made my two-ingredient drink with, that's a highball with a jigger. The jigger, in some senses, you can make great drinks without a jigger. And in some bars, like employees only, for instance, probably free pour. The reason you use this or don't use this, but the reason that I use this is merely because if I make a great drink and I like it and I want to make myself another great drink or I want to make other people that same drink, if I measured it, I can reproduce it. And, and especially for recipe testing, when I'm trying to create a new drink, I want to, the more you taste those drinks, the, the looser recipe R&D gets. So you want to just make sure you're measuring and writing down what you've done so that you can do it again later. So I would just say that from a research and development creativity part, this allows me to, to keep track of what I've done. And then from a reproducibility standpoint, this allows me to you know, safely and, and without thinking reproduce these things. And then from, an, a, from a consumer sort of professional standpoint, when the guest sees me measuring the drinks, they understand that we have standards and are working from a formula and that I'm not giving you more whiskey than, than the next person because I like you more. I'm just following the recipe. So there's a sense of, of standardization that gives people a sense that, oh, there's 
they're portioning things based on taste and value, and they're not being discriminated on based on the poor again. It's also, once you get used to working with this, it's just as fast as free pouring. Like, it, this doesn't slow me down. It's, everything slows me down because I don't bartend anymore, but a working bartender can work very fast and efficient with this, this piece of equipment. You know, my, my, my thing is, is I'm always like pouring into it and pouring over the top of it. So it just all flows over the top anyway. So I've got, I put too much in anyway. I'm like, pour it until it flows over and it's all over the shaker or, or the stirrer. So it doesn't matter either way. Where does the word jigger come from? I believe the jigger, although all historical questions go back to David Wondrich, I believe it, it sort of comes from back in the 19, you know, 1800s. Like if you look back at old recipes from the 1800s, they used like in, in England specifically, they used wine glasses and there were all sorts of these sort of old terms for a gill of measurement. But, but I think really historically speaking, these things have been used to standardize recipes. I've got another question for you. This is, you're gonna put, I'm putting you on your toes here. You're going to have to think about your history now. Hopefully, hopefully you're prepared. But anyway... The, the, I still have a little bit left. Okay. The, the, the Bloody Mary. Now, the Bloody Mary, we have some provenance of our own here. Tom's family, his great uncle, Vincent, wasn't it, Tom? Yeah. Created and invented the Bloody Mary. So it was just John Jacob, wasn't it? Vincent was the one who died on the arm. Oh, so John Jacob asked. Oh, right. I think it was John Jacob, yeah, wasn't it? And then St. Regis. That's awesome. They invented the Bloody Mary. He invented it in, in, in Paris, Tom, and he brought it over um, with Harry's Bar when it came over and, and of course, went to St. Regis eventually. But it wasn't even called the Bloody Mary. It was called something else altogether. I forget what it was Red called. Red Snapper. Red Snapper. Oh, you know that. Well, I'm trying to put Jim on his, on, on his, on his toes here. What did you say, Jim? Is, Ferdin, is it Ferdinand Pete Petio is the person that created it? Is that this person or a different person? Yes. That's your relative? No, he was um, my relative's employee. That's so awesome. It was his barman. He brought him over. He brought him over from Paris. That's so cool. But here is obviously a New York bar that opened in Paris. And I know the drink came from there. And at the time, exactly, the Regis at the time was the tallest building in New York. So it was kind of like a you know, go-to place as a kind of like the, you know, they were amazing, the photographs from, from those days. But and we went, Nigel and I actually went, and um when we were discussing this doing this podcast, we kind of went there for inspiration. Inspiration, exactly. But, yeah. Anyway, we we went there. We had, we had a red snapper. You know, it's not quite the same as Bloody Mary. I don't know. I mean, I mean, everyone's got a recipe, right? Well, Tom, that's why I asked him because he happens to have his own line of uh, Bloody Mary seasoning. So I'm not shocked that he didn't actually sort of have a Bloody Mary on the side and pull it out and be like, well, actually, and then the Bloody Mary seasoning. So I was but like, okay, for a man who's come into seasoning, we we need to talk to him because we, you know we may. I was just going to say, because the Red Snapper, obviously, because it was the 30s, the vodka wasn't around then. Maybe I mean, it was gin. So it was a gin-based, um, yeah. But, I mean, now, I, you know, you don't get asked for Bloody Mary in any sort of medium-rated hotel or whatever. It will automatically be vodka, right. won't it? So, yeah, I want to know what Jim thinks. Is it the gin or vodka? So my thoughts are that, a, personally, a, a Red Snapper is more delicious than a... Bloody Mary, because gin adds flavor to the drink. I'm a flavor guy, so I mean, there's no doubt for me that it's a red snapper over a Bloody Mary. But I think that going back to this idea of getting interested in the stories, to me, the story, the historic story of the Bloody Mary, it has to do with the tomato juice. And I think it's interesting for 
the purpose of, of cocktail discussion and sort of de-art, like sort of taking the art and focusing more on the craft and even on the marketing, the drink, uh, I think it, it became popular because of the first, I think it was college in tomato juice was the first commercially available canned tomato juice. And so the reason why that drink I think took off at the time is there was actually some marketing and some money behind promoting this collagen tomato juice. And so you see that drink, I think, show up in the Ritz cocktail book from Frank Meyer in the 1930s. And then you see it take off in New York among, I think, like a celebrity set at the St. Regis. And I think that there's, as I said before, like I'm the artsy mixologist guy who would love to think that the, that our drinks, the deliciousness of our drinks are why they've endured for all these years. But I think that the sort of crushing commercial reality is that these big companies like College Inn were the reason why a drink like this got probably promoted in and, and through the use of celebrities or famous drinking spots. I also think that this drink is interesting because the pre-prohibition cocktail books and cocktail recipes mostly came from professional bartenders' guides and manuals, and the authors of drinks books were mostly bar directors or bartenders. After prohibition, you see this rise of the sort of journalist bon vivant who was like hanging out with the Hirsches. So I think that the celebrity, the use of celebrities to sell cocktails during the modern age of advertising moving into World War II really transformed drinks and drinks culture in America and the world. And it did so without bartenders, which for, for someone like myself would have left me, would have left me out in the cold. Yeah, but that being said, I mean, I'm I'm drinking Casamigos tequila right now, and I mean, you know, this is what uh, George Clooney's tequila, right? Yeah, it, it happens to be a pretty good tequila. I mean, and it's you know certainly a very easy to drink, you know, no sort of no brainer type of tequila that you know doesn't it's not complex specifically, but it's one of my favorite go tos because kind of mixes really well, right? So, yeah, so and there's a lot of driven awareness of spirits and cocktails for the last hundred years in a way that they really didn't before Prohibition, in the way that they have since. Right. And, and it's, I mean, that being said, you know, you see someone like The Rock come out with Terramana and, you know, he's, it, killed. It all, he's killing it. There's no doubt he's killing it. Although I must say, I've, I've tried it and it's not my go-to. I mean, it's just, you know, and that's just in all fairness, I love The Rock, but it, I'm sorry, mate, your tequila for me is not for me. But right. unless, of course, you want to sponsor this podcast, in which case we'll take a case. Um, <laughs> Let's also talk about the glass. I'd love to talk about the perfect glass because as a bartender, you know, clearly if you're mixing a drink, I feel just like a cup of tea, it, it all gets ruined if the actual cup itself is not bone china or it's not cut crystal or it's not. How important is the right glass, or especially with whiskey, you know, with, with, with cocktails rather in general, there is a glass for everything. There's a coupe, there's the martini glass, there's this, that. How is that, you know, is it, is it as important as we make it out to be? And, and what's the sort of stories behind that? In the wine world, Maximilian Riedel is the person that sort of came out and said, like, we should drink different wines and different glasses to accentuate the characteristics of different varietals. It's not the same in cocktails. So, like, you don't need to drink the Flamingo out of a Collins to drink, to appreciate the grapefruit juice and, and rum. The first thing I say, which I'm sure you'll love, hate, is that sort of is hokey, but it's true, 
is that we taste with our eyes first. And when I say that, what I mean is that when we look at something, I mean, as animals, we look at this and we say, is the glass clean? Is it, you know, is there any dirt on it? You know, and if it's clean, you grab it. If it feels good in your hand, you're going to bring it closer to your face. You're going to smell your drink. If it smells rotten or, or poisonous, you won't sip it. If it smells good, you'll sip it. And so the process of getting you to take the glass and put it near your head so you could smell it and then put it into your head so you could drink it is a process rooted both in, in health and safety and life preservation, but also rooted in aesthetics. And I find that a Baccarat glass for my whiskey or a Zalto glass for my wine or my fun hand-blown Japanese glasses for my beer is really like it, it creates a tactile sense. And I think that the more as a creative person that you can engage people's senses, their sense of sight, their sense of feel, their sense of taste, their sense of smell, like the hearing, like when you grab a glass that's really thin, the ice is gonna like thud against it. Whereas when it's like a hard glass, it's gonna chink, you know, or like when, so all these things play a factor. And I would say that for me, a great glass is a really thin hand-blown glass from Japan. For you, it could be a, a Baccarat crystal glass. For Neil, he could be like, he like only drinks out of Seth Rogen's ceramic teacups. Like if it's not like a ceramic teacup from Seth Rogen, he doesn't want, he won't drink it. I think glassware is where aesthetics come in. It's also where safety and health and, and appreciation comes in. And I think that you can tell a lot about someone when they, you know, either drink out of the appropriate glass or like they only will drink out of like their college pint glass or they only will drink out of a giant 7-Eleven. Like Jerry, uh, Jerry Saltz, the like art critic who like buys the like 32 ounce cups of coffee at, at the gas station, like, I think that's horrifying, but I also think it's kind of, and it's an epic sort of way of sort of saying I'm the 30, you know, I'm the 42 ounce coffee from the gas station guy. Like that is, I think our glassware and our drinks in many ways are our flags. And I think some of us fly freak flags and some of us fly conservative, like I stick to the rules flags. And some of us fly, hey, I'm an artsy person. I drink out of, you know, this hand-blown glass or this, you know, ceramic tumbler. With the exception of the Moscow Mule, which is probably the except one of the few exceptions to the rule, right? Which you drink out of a, a copper mug, isn't it traditionally to keep because it keeps the temperature and the the story behind the Moscow Mule, it was created by a guy who had just taken over the Smirnoff brand, which was tanking. And it was partnered upon with, I think it was a woman who had the mugs and another man who had a tanking ginger beer brand. And they came out with this Moscow mule in Hollywood, and it was at the advent of the Polaroid camera. And so what they did was three people who had products that they couldn't sell came together, created this cocktail, and took Polaroids of celebrities drinking Moscow mules in bars, and the drink took off. And it was during the kind of beginning of the Cold War, and I think that it was a a perfect example, once again, of another cocktail not created by an artistic genius bartender, but by three hungry marketers who use technology and celebrity to advance this drink by being aware of the zeitgeist and exploiting it. So it's sort of a fun formula that you see again and again played out through history that I think The Rock is doing right now. The Rock's going to get paid. 
he, he's going to get paid for sure. I mean, it is, and and good for him. Yeah, I mean, hear anything po- nice, say anything positive about the rock. rock the rock nice wakes up every morning. It, you know that thing about you were just saying about the visual thing of you look at something and you first you could sort of you first use your eyes. Nice looks in the mirror in the morning and he sees the rock, and then he goes down to breakfast. Nickname, I think he nick- gave himself the nickname eventually, or his wife did the pebble the other day. Was it you? I can't remember. Anyway, he'll never say anything nice about the rock because his, his alter ego is the rock. Ultimately, you know, in his dreams, he is the rock. So what? Well, so anyway, let's go. Let's go. Move on from the rock. Anyway. Nigel, do you get up and, and you go to the Iron Paradise every morning, or do you just skip the Iron Paradise every morning? Don't you tell? <laughs> <laughs> he looks like the rock's little bright little sibling. Yeah, let's get the Iron Paradise myself. Exactly. We've been through this before, Tom, and we already know, you know, he's the rock, I'm the pebble, and you're stoned. We've talked about this. Run, run, listen. Yeah. Thanks. What's your take on absinthe? Makes the heart grow stronger. I would say absinthe came out, was legalized right when we were at Peggy Club, right around 2007. And interestingly, going back in this more contemporary history, this was a time in the wake of a book called Vintage Spirits and Forgotten Cocktails, which this Hollywood producer named Ted Hay wrote, who's a serious cocktail historian. And he wrote a book that sort of romanticized all these ingredients that were once available pre-prohibition that were gone. And absinthe was one of them. And then a, then a bunch of entrepreneurial distillers led by a guy named Ted Bro brought it back. And I think Ted Bro's brand, Lucid, was the first one that came back. And then others followed. I mean, I can say it very simply. I think absinthe was at the front line of this reemergence of these kind of pre-prohibition ingredients in contemporary times. And I think absinthe is an interesting story because it was banned and it was banned. If you go back to the history, phylloxera hit in the 1860s, decimated the wine industry. And absinthe, because it was distilled, became very popular during that time. So the French and European wine growers had a vested interest in people not drinking absinthe because after phylloxera, after they regrafted their vines, the industry improved. And, and of course, they wanted people to go back to drinking wine. So I'm not saying that the wine growers axed absinthe, but a lot of people between the temperance movement, the wine growers and others had no vested interest in absinthe continuing to be popular. And then it disappeared. And I think the sad thing for myself, I like the taste of anise and I like the bitterness of wormwood. So I think absinthe is quite, quite nice. But selling anything that has those flavors in America just doesn't work. Americans don't like Uzo. They don't like Sambuca. They don't like absinthe. They don't like Pernod. They don't like Ricard. So it's a great ingredient <laughs> that went away because people didn't want it anymore. And I think you could say the same about Creme de Violette and some of these other things have disappeared. I know that Tom and I are both fans of Pernod Ricard, so in general, and, and you know, whether one's more Pernod, the other one's more Ricard, who knows? As I, we, one is shaken and one is stirred. But I, I think that, you know, for sure it, it's an interesting take, but I, it doesn't help having a name like Wormwood. I think that Wormwood doesn't help, although I will say that Wormwood, the German word for it, is the word vermouth comes from the German word for wormwood. So like that wormwood word is with us. And we're drinking, I was drinking, I was having a drink, a genopy last night, right? Which is wormwood, basically the wormwood fire picked from the high high Alps. Genopy is actually the herb. 
that so that yep. that's the herb that that's picked from the Alps, and that's a key formula part of the formula for chartreuse as well. It's delicious. Yeah, that was nice. Was getting a bit worried about the kind of urinous hue of my drink. I'm but all for your euro drinking. Like the, I'm huge huge fan of Pernod and Ricard, and I feel like. If you've ever spent an afternoon playing pool or bocce and, and drinking Prestis or Pernod, it's like... Oh, delicious. You've lived. Well, on that note, before we let you go, because you've answered so many of our great questions and you've been an absolute spirit as far as, um, you know, really uh, allowing us to ask you a bunch of very kind of simple but important questions when it comes down to cocktails. Because we don't often have... We have guests that love a cocktail but they don't actually know what much about them so it's been a real treat for us to to have a little education we have a little thing on on shaken and stirred called last orders which is a, a little rapid fire moment uh, that, that i'd love to kind of involve you in so right off the bat number one spirit for mixing cocktails my favorite or the one that gets ordered most or clarify that Ooh, i don't know I, i'd like to know both i would say the Today in America, the probably number one spirit is whiskey, probably American whiskey or rye whiskey. I, I would say with gin also being right there. Despite my connection to banks, I think for me, like I think making rum drinks with, with a variety of rums besides banks is probably my number one. You know, I would be I would be surprised if there wasn't a shameless plug. At least, I mean, thank well done, and and you know, I, I hope you get paid for that last little plug. And I, I expect I expect some banks rum, by the way. I expect a sort of at least a bottle, if not a case, actually, at the end of this podcast being delivered to my door, so I can plug banks rum as well. Banks, if you're listening, and you should be, I expect. Anyway, um, next, what's your favorite drinking game? I think pool. Like, I feel like we can call bocce or bull, like throwing the balls around. I would say that I'm going to call that a drinking game. I know it's a game that doesn't require drinking, but I can't imagine playing without drinking. Yeah, I like, I agree. I, I have a pool table. Tom has a snooker table and we both drink when we play. So I, I will go hard. And that's actually the problem with pool is that you try playing when, and the longer you play, the worse you get instead of better you get. You know, hey, that's one of those things, isn't it? Combination that doesn't work in a cocktail. Do you have, is that? The worst ingredient in the chainsaws coming back is orange juice. Orange juice works in almost nothing. Sorry for you screwdriver drinkers. Yeah, well, there you go. Fair enough, actually. And I, I, I've seen that too, even in a, a mimosa, actually. It can be a complete disaster. Or a Bucks Fizz. Filthy, filthy. What gets your goat and what floats your boat? The goat would probably have to be, since goat's milk is really hard to find and, and really not part of my drinking life, I would say I'm going to have to interpret that as a greatest of all time reference. And I would say that the Japanese whiskey highball probably would be the, my, my goat of the moment. That would be the goat that I am shepherding and trying to float my boat. So I would say that my double answer is the Japanese whiskey highball. And I, it floats my boat. And I feel like it, it has goat status in my life right now. There you go. I've never had an answer like that before for that question. <laughs> you, you took it to a whole new level. So, okay. So the movie of your life, who would you have play you? You probably are like friends with all the people that I would maybe have. No, no, no. He doesn't. He would listen um, to them all. Speed dial. It would have to be someone. Say The Rock. Yeah, maybe The Rock. I would say The Rock should be me. Definitely the pebble, but we anyway. Both have, we both have uh, great hairstyle, which you have as well, but he's a rock. There you go. 
Final and most obvious question, but shaken or stirred? Stirred. That's easy for me. Like, it's just, it's as I get older, you know, it's just getting it's a lot. I can just stir it. It's going to be great. There you have it, people. Jim Meehan, stirred. Thank you so much for being a guest in Shaken and Stirred and, and you know, re- really bringing us up to date with you know, all the different things about the cocktail culture. And good luck with everything. Good luck with your books. Good luck. Where can people find you? On the internet and in Portland, Oregon, and, and hopefully at a restaurant called Takibi coming up. I just want to say, I know this interview was, was sort of with me and about me, but I just want to say that as a sort of someone who's followed your career, it's very inspiring to me to see how you've sort of shape-shifted and transformed and, and, and have done so many different things. And, and I just, at first, when your producers asked me about being on the show, I was like, why the hell is Nigel want to talk to me? It's like, did he that's get the wrong guy? Like, it's about nice price. I suddenly sitting there thinking, yeah, you're right, actually. You know, it's absolutely. I think, it's, I think that there is, we could have a whole nother talk and a whole nother podcast, but I think that photography is all about, you know, finding a moment in time that makes someone feel comfortable and capturing it and ideally creating a moment that is memorable to them. And I think what we try to do as bartenders is also facilitate and create those moments that people will remember. So I just want to say that as a drinks person, it's very cool to see what you guys are doing with your time. You could obviously focus on many other things. And I think that while drinking, some of your shows have been really fun and somewhat rowdy, but I, I would just say that like, I love what you're doing and I appreciate the platform you're bringing to my humble life's work. So thank you. It's our pleasure, but I, we also like to be described as rowdy and that does happen quite often on Shaken and Stirred show. But that is what we're about. We're about having fun. We're about enjoying our life and we're about doing it over a cocktail, either shaken or stirred, perhaps even both. And, and we occasionally get rowdy, but this has been an education and rowdy. Jim, we have appreciated it. Thanks so much, guys. This is another episode of Shaken and Stirred. Check us out on Instagram at the Shaken and Stirred Show and check out Jim wherever you go. But if you're in Portland, you know, stop by his restaurant and, um, you know, just throw our name around. It'll get you a free drink, if nothing else. All the best. Thanks so much. Have a great night. Thank you very much for listening. That is Shaken and Stirred. We will be back next week with another podcast and another fantastic guest. And uh, stay safe. See ya. See ya.